Good morning, everybody. This is one of those where you might want to run, but if you run... <laughs> so, uh, in truth, this has been one of those weeks where you definitely think you got the short straw and all my colleagues, apart from Matt, aren't even here <laughs> to support me. Um, you know what, I'm looking out this morning and uh, it wasn't too bad at the first service and I, I'm feeling vaguely nervous because I know this is not just a topic that we talk about in an abstract and conceptual manner and then we all reflect on that in an abstract and conceptual manner when we get home. It isn't that and I just need you to know that I know that uh, and I hope that as we talk this morning... The bits that need to be tough will be tough, but it will all be full of grace. So thanks, Matt, for leading us in that this morning. So, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14. It's a really long and convoluted verse, really difficult to understand. It says this, you shall not commit adultery. Amen? Shall we all go home? Let's move on to Leviticus. You get to read from a whole bunch of books out of the Bible today that we don't normally read from. Leviticus uh, chapter 20 and verse 10. So this says this, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So that's just in case you weren't clear the first time. Um, I think there's a couple of things I want to say there, just briefly. Uh, the, the punishment for adultery under Old Testament law is the same as for murder. I think that bears saying. The second thing, which is easy to overlook, is that it talks about the adulterer and the adulteress, which actually is unusual because in the ancient Near Eastern law, normally the man got away with it. He wasn't punished, only the woman was punished. You'll notice that when Jesus, I'm off piste already, when Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, he didn't, he didn't and they didn't say, let's go find the man. They wanted to stone her. But actually, the law says both of them are culpable. Both of them are. And actually, that's important. Deuteronomy 5 verse 18 says the same as Exodus 20 verse 14. In Proverbs chapter 5 and 6, there are many warnings against adultery and the seductress and all that that means for everyone that is involved. Proverbs 6 verse 32 says this, Whoever commits adultery lacks understanding. And he who does so destroys his own soul. There's something very deep about this. It is not just a recreational activity that we're talking about. Something deep occurs in the heart of people at that point. The prophets talk about, uh, give lots of literal warnings against committing adultery, but they also use it as a strong image throughout that part of scripture of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel to God. They use the image of adultery to talk about the betrayal, the running after other gods, the finding their fulfillment in other gods instead of keeping faithful to the Lord God. And of course, the story of Hosea is a real, powerful, moving story of how God asked one of his prophets to experience what it is like to be the husband of a wife who commits adultery as an image of what it feels like to be God working alongside his people. And then there's Jesus, chapter 5 of Matthew. Please look that up if you have access. Verse 27, he says this, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Subtle, isn't it? 
You know what Jesus always does? Which is just so beautiful, actually. Is he says, those of you standing on your pedestal saying, it's not me. He says, look at your heart. He says, look at your heart. Because he says, only God is holy. And no one here in this room stands before him without the grace and mercy of Jesus. And for everything this morning, I want us to hear that. Because this is not about looking around the room, going, well, who is it then? Jesus says, always look at yourself. Look at your own heart. And then when you find that you are perfect, start worrying about other people. At the time of Jesus, there were two rabbis and they had a number of arguments because that's what rabbis did. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And one of their favorite arguments was, is there any reason for someone to be divorced? And one of them said, well, anything reasonable is a reason for divorce. So if your wife burns the cakes, you have reason to divorce her. If she stacks the dishwasher wrong, you have reason to divorce her. There's a few smiles around at this point. Any reason that you can justify as a reason is a reason for divorce. But the other guy, Shammai, said the only reason for divorce, and this is a whole other sermon, by the way, we're not even going there, is adultery. Which only this morning says to me this, adultery is very, very significant and important and destructive. There is no debate over that according to Scripture. Well, at least there was no debate about it until 1631. Because in 1631, the so-called Wicked Bible was published. And the Wicked Bible omitted one slightly important word and then became really, really popular. <laughs> but there wasn't a second print run. You know, this is, this is about the identity of the people of God, isn't it? That's what we've said all along. This is about the forming of the identity of the people of God. And it says, you shall not commit adultery. Because this is about faithfulness. And it's about purity. And it's about being distinctive and different from the people around us. This sermon does improve as we go along in terms of cheeriness, by the way, in case you struggle. I want to talk just for a moment about the true reality of adultery. Because adultery is like someone throwing a grenade and the grenade going off. It so often blasts apart marriages, not all by the grace of God, and families, and even churches. Extended families are involved. It is not something private very often. And the shrapnel falls from the grenade. And in a nanosecond, I wrote these words down. The shrapnel of lies, of deceit, of half-truths, of hurt, of shame, of guilt, of betrayed trust, of disappointment, regret, pain, failure, bitterness, resentment, brokenness, destruction. And I could go on. And tears. And more tears. And more tears. And more tears. We all know what it sounds like when a small child running full pelt falls head over and scrapes their knees and there's the cries of, help me, it hurts. And we understand the tears of grief at the loss of someone that we love that can be so profound. But nothing... Nothing has been so difficult to deal with sitting in a room with the tears of those, the gut-wrenching tears who've just found out that their husband or wife has betrayed the promises that they've made, who's walked over them and given the gift of intimacy to someone else. 
And if you've been there, you will know. But you know, that's not how the Hollywood films portray it, is it? It's not how our TV screens so often tell us that it is. Of course, I mean, affairs are normal, aren't they? Isn't that just what you do after a while? Common, even expected. I mean, providing you're not hurting anyone. Since whenever was that true? Life moves on, doesn't it? Don't you just need to get over it, draw a line, walk across it, forget, find someone else? In Hollywood, there is more glamour and less mess, more fulfillment, less destruction. You know, that struck me just the other day when um, we were watching Death in Paradise. By the way, you should definitely watch Death in Paradise. And um, it's so, so basically, it's like this. And, uh, a murder happens on a Caribbean island. Then there's lots of lovely Caribbean music, so it's all fine, it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> but the reason that it really struck me was that um, the detective who's Ardlo Hanlon at the moment was talking to all the suspects of this murder. And one of them said to him, well, I'm, I'm really a good guy, I'm really a decent man, I'm, I'm not someone that would ever kill anyone. And the detective said to him, you're a good guy, but you've been having an affair with someone that you've been working with in the Caribbean. I think that maybe your moral compass might have slipped a bit. And it jumped out, because no one ever says that. Because it's always fine, isn't it? I don't know why it should surprise us that our media is like that. You know, the UK in 2019 is the ultimate consumer society. We are programmed from birth to satisfy our every desire, to fulfill our needs. Because fulfilling our needs these days is but one click away, 24-7, 365. Whatever you want, you can have. It's a bit of a parody of Descartes, isn't it? I think, therefore I am. I shop, therefore I am. I want, therefore I have. And we know that that can always work for us. We are in a self-saturated, me-saturated, sex-saturated culture. I am at the centre. And we know that sex is almost at the centre of everything that we see around us, all our advertising, our TV shows, our chat shows, our magazines, everything. And we hear people say, and we know that they say things like, how can you still be a virgin at 16, 15, 14? Surely you're like some weird person. How can you spend your whole life and not have sex? How can you do that? It's like weird. Just be like a less than full human being. It's just subtly at the center of everything. Did you know that pornography is 30% of the traffic on the internet? It's probably more than that, actually. 30%. It is, I think, second in terms of income generation across the globe, it might even be first. It's after weapons. And that's our world, isn't it? Recent survey, 40% of Americans who are married admit to having a literal or emotional affair. 40%. We live in a sex-saturated culture and we are programmed to push every boundary, aren't we? So my little nephew is staying with us at the moment. He is uh, approximately 18 months old. I'm not used to having small people in my house anymore. It's so entertaining. Don't go near the television. Don't go near the television. Don't touch the television. Don't go behind the television. Don't go behind the television. No, it's sort of cute at 18 months. But it's not cute later on, is it, when we keep pushing those boundaries? 
We have to learn to say no. No to the things that would be unhelpful to us. No to the things that are outside of God's best for us. No to the things that push us to disobey God's word. We have to learn to deny ourselves. But our culture says, I want it, I must have it. We never deny ourselves, do we? Of anything that we want. Not often enough, anyway. We need to obey God rather than our own desires. Adultery, I think, at least in part, is fueled by our permissive approach to sex before marriage. I know things change, and I get that. I know people make mistakes, and there's always forgiveness, and we'll talk about that more later on. But, you know, because what we're saying is it's fine. You don't need to ever deny yourself. You don't need any boundaries. You can just do whatever you want. And then we imagine that somehow, miraculously, on the back of a half-hour marriage service, we'll suddenly change. That suddenly it will be easier to stick within the boundaries. That suddenly it will be easier to deny ourselves. That we won't still have the same desires. But if we have some boundaries before, then there's a higher chance of us being able to have boundaries after. Does that not make sense somehow? It's not just that God is being mean. It's that he actually knows how we're wired, how we're programmed, what's good for us, how we work, what will enable us to stay faithful within marriage. And one of the things that enables us to stay faithful in marriage is if we can remain pure before it. Chastity, that very old-fashioned word that allows us to be the people that God wants us to be. You know, when police officers want to learn how to detect counterfeit or forged notes, they don't spend hours and hours and hours looking at every variation of a forged note. What they do is they spend hours and hours and hours studying the real thing. Because when you study the real thing, then you can spot any kind of counterfeit because it's anything that is not the real thing. But with marriage, do we even know what we're looking for? Do we know what we're looking for in order that we might find out what the opposite of that is, what the counterfeit looks like? Because we spend hours looking at what is fed to us through films, through TV, through magazines, through Jeremy Kyle, through even people's Facebook accounts. Please put your hand up if ever you have put on your Facebook a picture of you having an argument. Or video. I mean, that would be properly entertaining, wouldn't it? No? No one done that? Anyone taken a photo of their husband or wife in a strop and put that on the internet? But don't do that. <laughs> I will have a lot of pastoral counselling to do. <laughs> you know, what we do, what we all do is we... Might, anything might have happened to this point. Let's take a selfie. Arm round, smile. Oh, don't they have the perfect marriage? Of course, we all have the perfect marriage, don't we? That's how it works. You know, we have all this coming in. And we spend virtually no time looking at what God says, what the real thing is. So we end up with many and common misconceptions about what marriage is. And those are often the door that opens to the dissatisfaction which either just makes life tough or which can make it, can make it easier to be seduced into an affair if the opportunity arises. So some of our com common misconceptions are this, marriage will make me happy all the time. Too much giggling. <laughs> really? Anyone experience? I mean, sorry, I shouldn't ask that. <laughs> That marriage is to make me, like the person, happy all of the time. But you know what? We, we buy into that, don't we? I should feel happy. I don't feel happy. Therefore, I'm going to find happiness. But actually, the misconception is that marriage will make me feel happy all the time. The second one is this. Marriage is easy if you're meant to be together. Like, if they're the one... 
then, then it's easy. So if it's not easy, then they're clearly not the one. So what I need to do is I need to find the person with whom it will be easy. Yeah. Is marriage easy? Is it really? Another one is this. Other people's marriages are easier or better than mine. Therefore, therefore I, mm, I need to be in a different one. And you know, we don't help ourselves, do we? Because we, um, we turn up at church and um, some of us sit with the person we're married to. <laughs> but generally, you're all really well behaved and I don't hear a lot of arguing and bickering going on during the service and you mostly smile. And, and you, look, you look like, you know, you just have the perfect, perfect marriage. And so when I'm sitting there thinking my week's gone rubbish and we've just had an argument and we don't ever seem to be able to resolve this one thing that we keep coming back to, and I look around and I go, well, they're fine and they're fine and they look perfect and they're obviously having the best marriage ever. So what's the problem with me? But actually... I know because many of you talk to me, <laughs> which is really a privilege, that mostly everyone has the moments. And mostly everyone is struggling from time to time. And sometimes those struggles are pretty tough, actually. And mostly the person you're married to is not the perfect saint that other people see. Because they have issues just like you do. And we need to remind ourselves that we're all doing the best we can <laughs> by the grace of God. And a bit of honesty helps with that. Another of those misconceptions is this. When I said in my wedding, for better or worse, richer or poorer in sickness and in health, what I really meant was, for better or better, richer or richer, and health and healthier. That's what I really meant. And no one really told me what the other bit was. And it, I said that bit quietly because I didn't really mean it. But actually, that's the promise, isn't it? The promise is when it's great and when it's rubbish. When we can pay to have a great holiday and feel all tanned and beautiful, and when we can't. When we can do everything that we want to in the way that we want to because we're both well. And when we can't. Another of those misconceptions is that marriage will sort out all our brokenness and issues. Because I like, you know, because it's the answer, isn't it? Aren't we told that it's, it's the answer? Marriage is the answer. So I bring all my brokenness and my baggage and my issues and, and the other person's going to take them all away. Oh, no, no, because that's not true, is it? Because... The other person brings all their brokenness and baggage and issues. And here we have this big pile of it in the middle. And now what? And sure, we can help each other. And we can work together. And we can either use it to throw at each other or we can sit on this side of it and say, let's, let's work at this together. Truthfully, we probably all do both of those things. You know... In Romans chapter 12, it says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one of the important things about this is that unless we know what marriage is supposed to be, we won't be able to let God transform our minds and our minds work along with our desires to influence our behavior. So if our minds are right, that helps to check our desires and that will help to influence the way that we live and makes a fighting chance that we might live in a way that's honoring to God. It says in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24, the person will leave their father and mother and cleave, I love that word, cleave to their wife. A man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one. And that word is echad, you know, like when you've got a cold, echad. <laughs> One, you know, it is like getting together two bits of paper and we put super glue on both sides and we stick them together. And you can no longer see that there's two bits of paper, really. There is one bit of paper. Now, if 
at some point, someone comes along and says, I'd like to separate those two bits of paper. What happens? What happens when I try and pull those pieces of paper apart from each other? They tear, but worse than that, actually, bits stick on one bit, bits stick on the other bit, the whole thing is stuck and decimated and, and a complete mess. And you do not have one, but you also do not have two. That's the kind of oneness that we're talking about here, where the lines blur, where two people are wrapped up so close that they know and are known but even more than that, it's a spiritual reality. That's why marriage is known as a sacrament. That something happens beyond just the joining of two people together. Something powerful happens in the commitment, in the promises, and in the sexual union beyond that. The two become one, echad. The only relationship that is strong enough to hold that kind of untamed and fierce power, according to God's word, is marriage. God has a very high view of what sex is, not a very low or bad view of it. He has a high view of it. He says it's so important that this is the only safe place for it. Marriage is not a lifestyle choice. I think I fancy being married. I'll just find somebody. It isn't a lifestyle choice, so we can go, oh, you know, I don't like this lifestyle choice anymore, which is another one. Nor is it actually a cultural convention where people over time have just decided that getting married seems to be a good way forward. It is a deep creation idea, God's idea, to bring two people and join them together as one. It is more than feelings, more even than love. It is a physical and spiritual reality. It's more than love, but it is love. But that's also one of the biggest misconceptions, isn't it? One of the things that leads in the direction of adultery. Well, you know, we just don't love each other anymore. Or we just don't feel in love anymore because feelings are king in our world. We just don't feel in love anymore. Well, it's not really working that well. But what is love? What does it mean? In John 13, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. What did he do? What did Jesus do for his disciples in John 13 when he showed them the full extent of his love? He washed their feet. When was the last time you did that in your marriage? Okay, that's a challenge for this afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> he washed their feet. <laughs> You'll remember only that now, I know. <laughs> love is serving. Love is choosing of your own free will for the sake of another person. Love is not necessarily the feeling of love. We'll come on to that in a minute. But the action of love. Jesus kind of love, that self-giving kind of love, which in the Old Testament Hebrew is this word, ahava. That kind of love. There's also raya, which means kind of friendship, companionship, spending time together. And we're going to read these verses because they're in Song of Songs and we don't read that very often. And I've chosen wisely. Song of Songs, chapter 2 and verse 10. This is like in the early days of a relationship. Maybe before it's even kind of got going. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth, the season of singing has come, the cooing of doves is heard in our land, the fig tree forms its early fruit, the blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. That's the friendship, companionship, sharing time together, all of that kind of thing. We can experience that without marriage. Okay, That's a part of love that we experience and find fulfillment in. In marriage, really important, but also beyond it. 
We have friends, we have companions, we spend time with people, we find love and fulfillment in that regard. There's also this one, great word, dod. Dod. It's kind of the, the equivalent of the eros in Greek, but it's quite cool, isn't it? Dod. And, uh, and it means that affection. It's the kind of sexual bit, the chemistry, the something else stuff. And Song of Songs chapter 1 verse 2 says this, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. And there's lots of verses like that in Song of Solomon, but many of them would make me go more red, so I'm not going to read those ones. <laughs> but Ahava is deeper and wider and stronger than both of the above. It's those two things which are really essential in marriage and some more, and more. It's the, about the deepest part of your being. It's about love that is unbending, unflinching, relentless. It's this kind of love that Solomon speaks about in chapter 8 of Song of Songs and verse 6. And just hear some of the imagery that he uses here, talking about this ahava, this kind of deep love. He says this, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away unstoppable, unquenchable, like a tidal wave. Do you get the kind of feeling we're talking about here? This is that kind of love that has resolve. It's the kind of love that has staying power and commitment. It's what carries a relationship through the whole of life. You know when, what is statistically the point at the moment where most marriages are falling apart? It's when children leave home. It's, the, it's when you've done 20, 25 years together and then you go, I've still, I've still got a long time left. I don't know if I want to spend it with this person. It's just so sad, isn't it? To invest that many years and everything that means, but that's statistically the case. Maybe we need to listen to that. The whole of life... Oh, well, in the past, people didn't live so long, so it was a lot easier for them. <laughs> well, in Genesis, people used to live to like 900 and something, so frankly, keep, count yourself lucky. It's not that long at all. <laughs> it's that kind of love that takes you through the first bit, the small babies bit, the tantrum toddlers bit, the everybody working at full pelt trying to go get through in your career bit. Teenagers that never go to bed bit. The conversations at two in the morning bit. The we're not sure who we are anymore, the kids have gone bit. The we don't function quite how we used to bit. It's that kind of love that will get you through the whole of life and not just the easy bits. Friendship is not enough. Attraction is not enough. You need all of the things and underlying it all, the ahava. But we need to be aware of the threats that come in. I think I've already spoken about this really, but the comparisonitis is really, really a powerful thing. The looking around, thinking everybody else is fine, everyone else is brilliant, everyone else's husband or wife is amazing. You know, we all have the moments when he hasn't put the toilet seat down again. Where we haven't loaded the dishwasher right again. Where we have different views on how we discipline and raise our kids. Where we have different ideas about how it would be nice to spend our holidays where we argue and bicker about stuff that's totally irrelevant and stupid, and we miss out on discussing the main things that are really, really important, where we feel tired and exhausted and can't be bothered. And you know, I would ask you to put your hands up, but it would just be embarrassing. But I, you know, we all have that. 
We all have it. No one has the perfect, never any issues, never any arguments, never any grievances type marriage. Some people are just better at dealing with stuff than other people are. Maybe some people have it a bit easier than other people do because personalities, maybe that's just how it is or circumstances. But please never look around you and go, it's just me, it's just us. Because I talk to you and I know that it isn't. We have this in our context that new is always better. So, you know, when I don't like my hairdryer, I get a new one. When I don't like my food processor, I buy a new one. When I don't like my jacket anymore, I get a new one. When I don't like my car, I get a new one. When I'm a bit fed up with my husband or wife, I just get a new one. And I know it's not quite that simple, but those things get in our psyche. That when it's not working and it, we don't like it anymore, well, it's fine, we'll just get a new one. Well, anyway, that's like what 50% of people do, and they seem fine, don't they? They seem fine. And sometimes they are fine. But it's not the way forward. We let ourselves hear these really damaging words, I deserve better than this. I deserve more than this. And actually, sometimes our so-called friends, I'm not looking at anyone, by the way, our so-called friends say, you deserve more than this. You deserve better than this. I, w I wouldn't stay married to someone who is like that. Now, sometimes, hear me, sometimes there is reason. Okay, we, we, we talk a bit about domestic abuse and stuff. That conversation is a different conversation than this one. But let's not let those little worms get into our heads. I deserve more than this. When actually it's just that we're a bit fed up. And then there's all the practical stuff around time away. Some of you work away on business a lot. Hotels, choices we make around movie channels and internet viewing. Those things come in as threats to our marriage. If you are continually watching pornography, don't, don't wonder if your marriage is not doing well. If you won't make those choices when you have access to movie channels in hotels where no one can see you, don't be surprised if your marriage suffers. You know, we have choices to make and uh, it's up to us. You know, when Joseph was presented with an opportunity in Egypt, he'd had a bit of a rubbish life, actually, to that point. He found himself in Potiphar's house with Potiphar's wife. He was just a servant. She said, come to bed with me. Here's your opportunity. Now, he might have thought, if I do that, that will be good for me. I, I will do well from that. She'll like me. She'll be indebted to me. I will do well. What he did was he went, this is not good. He ran in the opposite direction, so much so that he left his cloak with her. He ended up in prison for many years, but it was worth it for his own integrity. When threats come, and they will, run. Run. Make hard decisions. Run. Be accountable. Be aware. You know, when, uh, when you get a phone call or a phone message and the name on the screen does something to your heart, you need to think about that, unless it's your husband or wife and that's okay. Seriously. Such a small thing, isn't it? If a text you receive does something to your heart that nothing else does, pay attention. Pay attention. Make choices. Make choices. Because it starts there. It doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts there with a text message. Pay attention. And check your heart, Jesus said, didn't he? It's in your heart. And he is radical. Now, listen. He says if your eye sees something that it shouldn't see and your heart feels something it shouldn't feel, gouge out your eye. Right. <laughs> but it says something, doesn't it? Be radical. 
Don't think as we many of us do. I can deal with it. I can deal with it. It won't happen to me. I'm not like that. I won't get led along that path into temptation. Well, maybe you won't. By God's grace, maybe you won't. Don't think that. Think, I won't be able to deal with it. I need to deal with it right now before it's got started. So I was reading a book this week, or some of a book, by a guy called Gerald O'Collins. And he talks about the three journeys of life. The first journey is childhood to adulthood. That's kind of okay. It kind of just happens. The third journey is old age to death. That's the cheery one. You can place old age wherever you wish to this morning. And the second journey was the one in the middle. And it kind of happens when it does. So for some people, it might start at 25, but for other people, it might start at 45. You know, it, it's just, it's the journey that starts when there's restlessness, when there's questioning, when there's even disillusionment, where there's maybe a crisis that happens. It might be through sickness or redundancy or failure or feeling like life hasn't quite worked out how you thought it was going to, where you feel a bit lost and disorientated, where your foundations get shaken. It's lonely, unsettling, full of tempting diversions. We might call it a midlife crisis. And here's your checklist. Are you spending more time in the bathroom checking for white hair? Are you thinking of doing a bungee jump? If you're a guy or a girl, in fact, are you thinking of getting a Harley Davidson? Are you brushing and flossing your teeth more diligently now? Are you spending more money on vitamins and supplements? Are you seriously thinking of getting a tattoo? <laughs> you know, we call it a midlife crisis. It is actually a real thing because Lots of people experience this on their second journey, and the bit in the middle. And he talks about navigating the journey, and it's in that place that affairs so often happen. He says, be patient. Be patient. Don't think that it will sort all out immediately. Things don't always. Sometimes they need a hard, hard work, hard looking at, hard talking through, some counselling, some help. Be patient. Be patient that actually your life isn't quite exactly how you want it. Just be patient with it. That's how it is. He says, be brave. Face up to things. Don't hide behind them or in them. Face them. If, you're, if you've got crisis going on, face it. If there's problems, face them. If things aren't working well, face them. Be brave. Don't just trundle along hoping it will become better because it might not. So be brave. Deal with things that are knocking you off course. And he says, be wise. He says in the second journey, don't take alluring detours or counterfeit destinations. Don't take alluring detours or counterfeit destinations. If you are married, you have signed up to this person. In the signing up to this person, you signed up not to anyone else. That's the deal. So anything that takes you away from that person is a detour. It's a counterfeit destination. It's not what God sees when he sees marriage. So, concluding-ish. Adultery is devastating, especially for the wounded person. It really is. But it often is for the perpetrator too, actually. Not always. Sometimes people don't care. They just want to hurt somebody else, and that's what happens. And uh, that's what this church is about, isn't it? Walking with people who are broken, and we sob together, and we walk together through some mess, and Jesus is with us, and that's how it is. But often it's really devastating for both people. And we have a God who is the God of the second chance, don't we? A God who continually says to all of us, remember none of us was on pedestals this morning, who continually says to all of us, you can have a second chance. You can have a second chance lots of times over. You know, David, after his affair with Bathsheba, and that was seriously bad, and they seem to have been the poster couple for all of the Ten Commandments so far. I feel slightly sorry for them. In fact, 
he wrote a psalm, Psalm 51, and it's beautiful. And we might read it a bit later, but he says in there, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, A broken and contrite heart, spirit, you don't despise. So when we come, whether we're broken because someone's broken us, or we come broken because we are broken at what has happened, what we have done, we come to the same cross, to the same place, to the same God. There is a huge difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is kind of saying, I'm sorry I got caught. Repentance is saying, I cannot believe that I have done this in my life and I want to turn around and go in a completely opposite direction. I never want to go in that direction ever again. When God sees repentance in our hearts, his arms are wide open to us. He says, you'll get another chance. I can clean you up. I can forgive you. I can cleanse you. And so if you are here this morning and this is the message that you need, because frankly, you have spent the whole service wishing you were not in here and you'd only known what it was going to be about this morning, you would not have come. This message is for you that if you come back to God, you come to God, he forgives, he cleanses, he makes you clean, he gives you another chance. And if you've already done that, you do not need to do it again. You do not need to carry the weight of guilt upon you for the rest of your life. If the people concerned, you have right relationship with them and right relationship with God, you do not need to carry that guilt for the rest of your life because God has forgiven you. And he sorts you out and he deals with it the same as he deals with every other sin that we have. Do you hear me? So don't carry that. If you don't need to, don't carry it. If you need to, then repent. Deal with it before God. Sort it out. Deal with it with anybody else you need to sort that out with. Be accountable. Sort your life out. Get in right relationships with people so this does not happen. If you're thinking about doing it, do not do it. Do not do it. Anything good that you think might be coming of it, it is not going to be good. Do not do it. I think that's clear. For some, an affair... The betrayal of your trust is the end of the road. A road that has maybe got more and more damaged. You know, even, the, even scripture says that adultery is a reasonable cause for divorce. Because it is so devastating. It's that piece of paper ripped in half. But you know, my joy has been over... 25 years of ministry here to see that God can take two people who have been ripped and in only the way that he can do he has put them back together again it's frankly miraculous and I mean that that, that God can take two people who desire to restore their echad two people because both people need to be in this. Two people who desire to restore their echad, their oneness, through a period of forgiveness, of healing, of grace, to restore trust, deeper love, and ongoing commitments. So if that's where you are this morning, there is no pressure for me. <laughs> None at all. I just think it's amazing when people are that gracious but I want to assure you that God is able to do things that humanly seem utterly impossible that he can take even the after effects if both people are coming with that desire and are patient transparent, vulnerable accountable, all those things and say come on our marriage is worth more than this I'm going to suggest, Matt, it's over. I'm going to suggest that I read to you those verses from Psalm 51. Because, you know, none of us is righteous. 
None of us are entirely pure. So we all need to come back to the cross, don't we? We all need to say sorry. We all need to know his forgiveness and cleansing in our lives. Now, Matt and I were talking about this a little bit um, on Friday, I think. <laughs> Friday seems a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, the prayer ministry team will be here. I've said this before. If you come for prayer this morning, <laughs> we will not. We make a pledge to not all think that you are committing adultery, right? You may just have a headache or something. I say that because, seriously, we need to respond to God. And I don't want the enemy to allow you not to respond to God by saying, oh, they'll all think that you've committed adultery, all right? Chances are, if that is your issue this morning, you might want to talk to one of us in private <laughs> during the week. But actually, we just need to respond, don't we? We need to invest, if we're married, in our marriages we need to deal with the things that get in the way. We need to deal with those threats that come in, because they do. But also we talked about making a commitment together this morning to strengthen and encourage other people in their purity and faithfulness. Because it's tough, actually. When one in two marriages breaks up, and that's not that dissimilar in the church, it's hard so we need to make that commitment together to say, I stand with you. I will encourage you. I will walk with you. When you start moaning about something to me, I will try to help you. And if I can't help you, if I'm not the right person to help you, I'll put you in the direction of someone who is. But let's be different. Let's be the community of God's people. Let's support each other as much as we are able to keep on going in the right direction. I'm going to read this to you. You might even want to close your eyes and then I'm going to let Matt lead us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you approve right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen.